join Derek and Yvonne Mulligan, your enthusiastic hosts on The Hipstorians, as we whiz back and forth through time and covering the stories that have shaped our world. With listeners spanning across 39 countries, this compelling podcast will bridge the past and the present in an entertaining, accessible and lively way. Tomorrow may be a mystery, but on The Hipstorians, everything else is history. We explore historical events through interviews with world-renowned authors and historians, deep diving into different eras and uncovering hidden gems. Whether you're a history aficionado or a curious newcomer, we offer something for everyone. So subscribe today to embark on your time-traveling adventure with us, the Hipstorians. Connect with a community that shares your passion for the past and stay tuned for engaging interviews, enlightening discussions and a fresh take on history. So grab that cuppa, get comfortable. Here we go. Well, hello, Hipstorians. We got another episode coming at you. And this week we're delving into the special air service with XSAS Commander Tom Petch. This book is full of detail. It's called Speed, Aggression and Surprise. So it's a a good use of the acronym for the title of the book. And it's full of all those elements with some really amazing characters. And when you know, you, you hear about how the SES came into being, the you know, the chaotic nature of it, uh, in, in essence, into what would have been a very ordered military structure. So it went really against everything that uh, the British Army might have stood for at the time. But it really helped in, in winning the war. That, that's for sure. So with that, let's welcome Mr. Tom Petch. Welcome Thank to you the- very much. Great pleasure to be here talking yeah. to you. Hey, Good. Tom, how's it going? Very good, thank you. Yeah, excellent. So, I suppose to set a little bit of the stall out um, and give our readers an insight into how the book was written and the fact that you know you're not going to read a history about the SAS from somebody who's not been in it. That's going to be as good as this. That that's for sure. I mean, it really comes through that you were you know involved with the SAS you understand the military strategies and the tactics behind it and were able to with extract all that information essentially from the archives and put it together into something that's very very uh, readable so tell us a little bit about your story Tom how did you arrive as a commander in the SAS Oh, I, I arrived by doing something they call selection but I, I joined the army back in a long time ago 89. And I joined what's called a cavalry regiment. So, you know, the archaic British Army, we keep <laughs> horse names like cavalry for armoured troops now. So I joined up, did that. Uh, and I was in for eight years and I did I did selection right at the end of my time. Uh, and then I left the military in must be 1997. Yeah. And, and then and then that kind of led to this book because I joined the film industry, which was a bit of a change in career. <laughs> Quite a surprising one for an army guy. And and I got involved in a couple of uh, projects that never happened about the SS, but that led to me going to the archive. And and you're right in what you said, which is that when I went to the National Archive, which must have been early 2000s, I discovered that we were still using in when I was in the military the same format and documentation they were using in 1940. <laughs> so you know it wasn't. It was like going and looking at my own desk and going, oh well. I understand all this. I understand all these abbreviations and that. I know who all these people are. I can translate this into something, uh, something that makes sense. And that led eventually to this book. It was a longer, longer story of research, but yeah, it led to this book. And, and the characters that are involved 
well, the main character, like Dudley Clark, I mean, I, I have to say, I'm sure I have read about him somewhere before, but he wasn't on my radar as far as the SAS went. I suppose being Irish, uh, you know, Blair Paddy Main would have been at the forefront yeah. of the list. Uh, yeah. Obviously, you got you got uh, Sterling and you've Jock Lewis, but certainly Dudley Clark was in the background as far as my thinking went. And um, but it's actually him that was behind so much more. So, like he fell kind of in an odd time in history and in, in, into the story, didn't he? He he was really young when he joined up for the artillery regiment. Is that right? In World War One. Yeah, yeah. So his, he, you're right. He he doesn't exist in the narrative because his his role was kept secret, and so he was sworn to secrecy after the war, and a lot of his stuff became declassified. We, we can talk about you know his mission to Ireland and stuff like that, but all of that was kept under wraps till like 2000. So so nobody knew about it. He'd been sworn to secrecy. But you're right to start his story. He he joined up in the military at the outbreak of the First World War but he was too young to fight. He tried to actually surprise, he tried to get across the channel uh, with casualty replacements, get to, get, get to the front line, unbelievably. I mean, you, you know, those times were different. You've got to think about 1916. A lot of them wanted to get into the war because it was the thing that everyone wanted to do. And that really influenced his thinking because he lost a lot of friends in the First World War. And I point that out in the book. There's a photo of him uh, at cadet, you know, cadet school, and half of them died. The sergeant instructor died at Gallipoli. But, yeah, he he tried to get into the war. Uh, he didn't succeed through the artillery. So then he switched to the Royal Flying Corps, uh, which is what became the RAF. So there was no RAF in the First World War. This was the Army Flying Unit. And he he started training for that. He thought that would get him to the front line. But unfortunately, the weather was so bad in 1917 and 18, he ended up going out to Egypt to carry out his flying training. And that's really important to this story, because as we know, ultimately, when you're talking Blair Paddy Main and David Sterling, Egypt is, is really instrumental in the whole narrative. And the fact he's out there flying aircraft around in 1918 and also seeing what Lawrence of Arabia is up to, who is a... Uh, an early special forces uh, leader, I would say, in the First World War. Yeah, because this is where th things really started to change because for the previous hundred years, I mean, I suppose what everyone would have thought of warfare was uh, Waterloo, you know, just two big armies, you know, going at it for a few rounds and thank you very much, we've lost, we're going home, see you later, you win. Uh, and things were definitely changing after, you know, after, well, World War One was largely along those lines, it just became very, very static. But World War Two was much more a, a war of, of movement. And he was involved then uh, around the Middle East between the wars and spent quite a bit of time in Cairo, is that right? Yeah, he, he did. I mean, there were a lot, he did a lot of things between the war, uh, that, that influenced the, the creation of special forces. So we can mention Lawrence of Arabia, and the important thing about um, uh, Lawrence of Arabia was he did sort of early special forces operations where he helped the Arabs fight the Turks. So he did things like he helped them with weapons training, explosives, all the sort of thing that modern special forces do to make them more effective and, and, and help them take on the Turkish army. And then when the war ended, he, he did a lot of different jobs. He went briefly... Uh, uh, as a journalist, actually, to Morocco, where a little-known war called the Rift War happened. And the important thing about that, there was a Berber insurgency leader, uh, a little bit of history, which your audience probably don't know, but the Rift Mountains are, are, are in the north of Morocco, and the north of that was a Spanish colony, and the south of it was a French colony. And this this Berber insurgency leader called Abdul Karim took on both those empires and beat them for years. 
thousands of casualties. And the way he did that was through insurgency. You know, again, you know, you're talking little bands of men hiding out, moving quickly, you know, sniping and moving. And Clark was there watching that going, well, they've pinned down all these troops with these few guys. You know, it's quite extraordinary. And then, and then you're right, he was around Cairo. And then he was over in um, what was then Palestine, now Israel, uh, at the start of what we now know as the Intifada. So he was there when that insurgency started, which was the Arab revolt to try and get rid of the um, Jewish immigrants. So basically, that was 19, uh, late 1930s. And again, he was involved in that, watching the Arabs carrying out an insurgency against the British army. So these things all fed into his head and uh, and created at the beginning of the Second World War these ideas that then led to the creation of special forces. Yeah, and they were all crazy, crazy ideas. We, we, we'll get into that. I suppose what interests me about the SAS and the whole thing of the parachute regiment and all that, I had a, a great uncle, uh, he, he lived in Chicago after the war. He got a free ticket to the States, but he he had served in the, the British military um, up to, I think, 1936 uh, and had left the army and then rejoined uh, at the start of the Second World War and was part of the uh, the first ever paratroop regiment. Uh, he served in, in North Africa Africa and Greece, and uh, he ultimately finished out his service in uh, Palestine, which is where he met his wife-to-be, who was the last surviving member of a family that had been killed in Auschwitz. So there you That's go. Story, yeah. 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 And he never came back to Ireland after, after that. He, he literally went out to America, spent 50 years there, died, never never returned home, even on a visit. That's extraordinary story, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that, that was... Uh... That period of time was very, I mean, not so different now, maybe with with what's going on in Ukraine. Obviously, we've got, you know, there was a lot of wars going on, a lot of movement. And Clark was part of that pre-war, pre-Second World War generation where he actually came from South Africa, where his family came from South Africa. And that led to the idea he had. So when, when we when we get to the start of the Second World War, we're basically beaten. If you take May 1940, you know, it'd be hard to describe the shock, you know, don't want to reference the rugby, but you know, it, you know, it's like Ireland at the end of the game. It was bad. You know, we we were out on our feet, and and there was nothing that could be done. As Dudley Clark said, he said, "It's the first time we come back across the channel in you know 400 years, you know, 350 years. We haven't come back across the channel without our equipment. You know, we're used to going over to France and beating them up, and and that's it. And here we are, you know, back across the channel, and we're finished. And so that was the shock that led to the opportunity, really." Because, uh, like you said at the beginning, the British military were very conservative. I described them as luddite in between the wars. You know, we'd won yeah. the we'd won the First World War. We were very complacent, and we get completely knocked out by the Germans and this innovation they've done. And yeah. that gives Clark his opportunity because one of the guys he worked for in um, in Palestine was a guy called uh, General Sir Jack Dill, and he took over as chief in charge of the general staff. Uh, the Churchill sacked his predecessor after the predecessor got in a punch up with some French generals. Uh, over a counterattack, literally punched one of them. And Churchill said, we need to remove this man, find someone we can work with. And that that, that was Dill. And when Dill took over, so this was right around the time of Dunkirk, uh, Dill knew Clark and said, I want Clark to be my assistant. And then, of course, Dill's just stood there in the office going, what do we do now? And Clark goes, I've got this idea. Uh, I've got this idea. It's it, it's it, He didn't call it special forces. He, he said, what we're going to do is, what we should do is we should send small bands of men back across the channel and dissipate the strength of the German army. And uh, just like the Arabs do in Palestine, like the Berbers did, you know, and and like in South Africa, the commandos did. Uh, and that was the name he chose, commandos, because they were the Boers who rode around in the belt and, and ran rings around the British army. 
And Jill loved, Jill loved that idea. So that's brilliant. And he also knew Churchill, who'd also just taken over, would love it. And so he goes in to see Churchill for London. Churchill goes, that's it. You can have the commandos up. You can have that. That's a brilliant plan. And off and they, they went. Had, and they had to drag the... Where did they get the troops for the commandos? Well, that was that was the first problem, actually, really. Uh, and, and a problem throughout the Second World War was trying to find troops that were able to do this work because... There was no selection and training. If you imagine the army is now broadly conscript, uh, you know, everyone's being drafted. Uh, most, a lot of pre- pre-war regulars are either dead in captivity or perhaps not the type who would embrace this sort of soldering, which is very alternative. And and the final stipulation was, uh, uh, as Dill said to Clark, we're not allowed to use anyone who is um, can be used for home defence. Which is most of the British Army, but he got a bit lucky in that there, there was a there was an outfit called Independent Companies, and they'd been formed right at the outset of the war. And he happened to know one of the officers. He'd worked in the Trans Jordan Front Force. He went to Scotland to meet up with them. They'd just come back from Norway, where they'd taken a bit of a beating. And he managed to recruit a hundred of those guys. And three weeks after that meeting with Dill, they were back across the Channel into Latuke, throwing grenades into a German hotel and killing German officers. It was a very fast turnaround. Good. I was only saying to uh, Yvonne yesterday, I think it was, just about the commandos. So, you know, given that bit of a, a thing about my great uncle, uh, obviously having an interest as a, as a young child, probably 10 or 11. And uh, I wrote to Jim will fix it get in with the commandos and I go no, I was saying how very lucky I probably was that I never got very lucky probably not to meet him not the commandos that would have been a challenge no no that would be good yeah yeah just we'll uh, fix it might not be such a good moment in your life no, yeah. no. <laughs> I think we all wanted to write to Jim we'll fix it yeah. well, I was up for that yeah definitely yeah. what was yours though? mine was I wanted to go to a chocolate factory oh, <laughs> I can't mine would be something to do with boats I was already into ships and sailing I would have been written into him for something to do with that you know Gosh. Okay, okay, okay. Go on the boat with Jim will fix it. That would have been a really bad moment in my life anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so the the special air service, like it's it's funny as well. Obviously, we're talking about parachuting and you know that those special skills of being deployed behind enemy lines. At, at the beginning, there weren't any parachutes, so there wasn't much training going on except for hurling bodies off the back of moving vehicles. Was that it? Well, yeah, it was. It's it, the parachute. We were very. Uh, the British were so far behind in parachuting because I mean the Russians had parachute forces, the Germans had parachutes and glider troops, and we didn't really have anything. But Clark again was the instigator of, of parachuting, really, because he uh, his first idea was we'd go by sea. The commanders would be seaborne because, as he said, the Arabs have got you know they can melt into the hills. The birds have got their horses and our mobility is the sea. So well, the sea makes sense. But then he quickly thought, well. Sea is good, but what would be better is to get parachute troops because he'd seen in he'd been in Norway when the Germans invaded. He'd seen the parachute troops there, and then he saw the damage they did in um, in Holland. So when the Germans invaded, they sent glider troops behind their advancing forces, so behind, and they took out the forts, which were very instrumental to the capture of Holland. Um, and he thought, what was good about that is the fear they create in the troops. And then, obviously, in Britain and and actually in Ireland, there was a big fear about parachute forces. And that made everyone panic. And he thought, this is exactly what we need. My special force needs to parachute because then they'll everyone will be running around trying to guard places, you know, and the, and the generals will be worried. So he thought, I'll switch one of the commandos, which is called two commando, to parachute training. And, and they started, they cut holes in the bottom of these old bombers. Um, 
And they started training at Man in Manchester out RAF Ringway, but it was very dangerous. I mean, you know, they really didn't know what they were doing. They're jumping through these holes in the bottle bombers upside down, attached with a static line to pull the chutes out. Two of them died, you know. It, it was a very dodgy business, learning to parachute in 1940, yeah. What's a, what's a glider troop? Gliders are, so the, the idea, parachuting, obviously, you've got to train people to parachute. Good thing about a glider, it's an aircraft that's towed by a tug aircraft. So you get uh, a, yes. another yeah. aircraft to pull it, and then as you get to the target, you release the glider, and it glides down. And the Germans have got so good at it, they could glide their gliders down so precisely they could land on top of a fort, you know, yes. and then the troops jump out. And it's great because, actually, the good thing about gliders over parachute, parachutes get spread everywhere. Gliders actually just get down in one place altogether, and it's a quite an effective way of getting troops. And you don't need to train them; they can just be normal soldiers in 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 those in those. So he wanted both gliders and um, gliders and parachute troops. But this is during the Battle of Britain, so there was no way we could resource this. And actually, that's why the SES gets created, or the name does, because there's a bit of a tussle between the army and the RAF. So the RAF trained 500 people. And then the army realized this lot are not going to get used. They're just not going to get used. And so they say, oh, we want these troops back. And the RF go, you can't have them back. We've just trained 500 people. You can't have them back. Said, okay, well, you can keep them. They'll go under RAF command. And any troops that were not, you know, had to have a regiment could call special service. So a staff officer type, this is the unit's now called the special air service. And that was the name. That's how the name the SS was created. And that was in November 1940. Because uh, it was Churchill that hated the name, wasn't it? Uh, the commanders. So he, he wanted to change it straight I, away. Or was oh, it yeah, I think Church. I don't know if it was Churchill hated the name as much as everyone around him. But they, the trouble with the commanders, they were our enemy, weren't they? This was a kind of, you know, this was an anti-British idea. The commandos were our enemy, and but Clark knew it was a brand name that encapsulated his uh, his his concept. But you're right, probably with glee, the British Army changed the name to Special Air Service because they didn't have to talk about the commandos anymore. Well, they did because they continued to exist, but as more regular troops. He, he was a, a completely different mind, wasn't he, of his time? Just all those tactics that he was able to come up with that were so different. Yeah, absolutely. I think, but then that is the narrative of the whole of Special Forces because it's a very disruptive form of warfare. And if you look at any of the characters, you know, you look at uh, David Sterling, Paddy Main, you know, the, the, all of these people were didn't want to be in regular soldiering. They just didn't. That, and so they were sort of disruptive. And the trouble with peacetime soldiers, you don't really want people like that around <laughs> because they're a real pain to deal with. It, but but in a crisis, th these guys came to the fore and Clark was one of those. He was one of these people who, to be fair to Clark, I think all the generals knew he had talents because he was constantly asked for solutions like the, the Special Air Service. And then he goes out to Cairo because another general he's worked for called Wavell goes, I need Clark out here because I can't cope with the Italians. And he wanted to set up an outfit for deceiving the Italians about how many troops. Are. He said, get Clark out here. I need Clark to be my assistant. So he, obviously they knew of his skills, but they weren't quite sure how to apply them before the war. But then the war happens. He's he's the go-to man for this stuff. Where where was it that he, uh, he covered? He had a whole field that he covered and pretended that he had tanks and, and covered them in black, yeah. black ones, yeah? Yeah, that was another that was another crisis. That was when uh, Rommel uh, invaded North Africa. So, well, Rommel arrives in North Africa to rescue the Italians. So we, we got the Italians on the run in North Africa. And then Rommel arrives and the whole thing goes wrong. And he just, you know, with a couple of tanks, runs rings around us, heads towards Cairo. And uh, Wavell calls Clark, thinking, I've got, I've got to stop Rommel. What do I do? And uh, Clark goes, well, the only thing I can think of is inventing 
fake tank units. He says, so I'll invent fake tank units. He can, he's, he's a bit of a rush job. By then he has an outfit creating fake SS gliders called K-Detachment Special SS. The SS still don't exist at this point, but he's got his fake outfit. And he thinks, well, instead of making gliders, they can make tanks, but they can't make them fast enough. They make about 150 wire and Hessian tanks, send them up to the desert. And then Clark thinks, oh, well, hang on. The, uh, the Germans hide their panzers in Bedouin tents. So if the Germans do that, they might think we do it. So he tie-dyes a load of British tents black, and he sends them up to the front line and puts them behind the front line. And he creates about 300 tanks. And Rommel stops his advance on Tobruk. Now, Clark himself thinks that could have been because of him. There were lots of things going on. I mean, if you know about Rommel's history, he's always flying by the seat of his pants. He never has enough fuel or ammunition. So he was at the end of it. And also, at that point, German high commander losing their rag with Rommel. They think he's gone mad. You know, they're, they're sending people over to try and get a handle on him because he's just running around Africa and he's doing his own thing. But I think it's fair. I think Clark probably was part of that, the reason he didn't take Tobruk at that stage. He's stopped him. Yeah, that's a really, that was a big turning point, obviously, in, in mm-hmm. the war. So we're getting into North Africa now. This is where things start to come together as far as uh, the SAS go. And we're, we're you're taking tactics as well from uh, the long-range desert group because uh, yeah. they have been in operation from the outset, hadn't they, and, and behind enemy lines? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you can't tell the t- story of the, of the Special Air Service without talking about the Long Range Desert Group. So that was the, um, that was basically the pre-war explorers. So there was a guy called, uh, if you've seen the film The English Patient, you've see, you seen The English Patient, I mean, it's a great film, complete nonsense, but a great story. And actually, a couple of those characters are real. So the guy in The English Patient is, is really, there really was a, a German spy. He didn't end up burnt like The English Patient, but Laszlo Massey, he was a real spy. All of those guys, but, but between the wars, they were they were basically uh, in North Africa trying to find a way through something called the Sand Sea uh, to navigate to a, to a fictional place called the Oasis of Birds, which was like their holy grail. They never really found it. But they were driving around in North Africa. And at the outbreak of war, one of the British leaders or the British leader of those sort of expeditions was a guy called Ralph Bagnold. who's a bit of a kind of, he's more of a scientist than a soldier. You know, he's much more academic. He is he is in the military. And he he ends up in Cairo by mistake. Actually, ship, his ship crashes into another ship and they have to go to court for repairs. He ends up at Shepherd's Hotel where he's spotted and, and General Wavell sends for him. And he basically pitches this idea. He says, look, before the war, I met the Italians in the desert. The Italians could know how to get to, across the desert. And if they can do that, they can take out the Assan Dam, which is, supplies all the water. And Italian officers told him he's going to do this in the war. So what we need to do is set up little um, patrols in the desert to warn us of this. And Wavell thinks, well, that's a good idea. And then he says, well, what happens if you don't find any Italians, if they haven't found the way through the Sansi? He says, and then, and then Bagnall goes, oh, what about some piracy on the high desert? And that's what Wavell really jumps. He goes, okay, great. Because that's another force, a bit like the commanders, a bit like this. It can go behind the lines. The, the, the Italians won't really know where they're coming from. In fact, the Italians think they're parachuting, which leads to some deception I can talk about in a bit. But, um, yeah, so that force is up and running. Uh, and then that very much amalgamates with the SAS, the arrival of the SAS. Those two outfits sort of join up uh, a little bit later. And it really, that is what really makes the SAS work, that force. So David Sterling and Maine and Lewis, so how do they come together? At, at what point? Yeah, well, yeah that's interesting because they're another part of Clark's initiative. So when Clark uh, leaves Britain to go to Cairo, he leaves behind the commandos who who cease to be really what I call a special force. They're now 
a really big outfits, church of them, thousands of commandos, you know, charging over the channel, whatever. And then there, a bunch of them are shipped out to uh, uh, North Africa to, to basically beat up Italian coastlines and things like that. Uh, but by the time they get, and that and that includes those characters, it's got Sterling, Maine, it's got George Jellicoe, it's got um, Jock Lewis, all the guys we know of as the future of British Special Forces are on those ships. But they get to North Africa in time to, to meet the Luftwaffe. And obviously with the Luftwaffe over the Mediterranean, they can't go by ship. It's impossible. The, the, the Stukas get them and stuff. And so a bunch of them, I mean, Jock Lewis, who's probably the fittest and one of the most able of the commanders, he he goes on fighting. He he gets out to Brook with his unit, but a lot of them just end up drinking at the Shepherd's Hotel Cairo, you know, like Sterling, where Clark lives. And so, and then and then two of them, Lewis and and Sterling, both want to try out parachute jumping. And of course, at this point, Clark is trying. He, one of the things Clark's really trying to do is deceive the Germans. We have a parachute unit called the Special Air Service in North Africa, and he's been quite successful. Because that unit he left behind in England, the SAS in England, actually carry out an operation in southern Italy. So they really do an operation. He pretends that operation's come from Cairo, from Egypt. And so when Lewis and and and, and Sterling say, hey, we want to try out parachuting, he's only too willing to sponsor them jumping out of airplanes, because that's exactly what he wants. He wants more people jumping out of airplanes. Brilliant. That we, at, the, at that moment, he's pretending we've got parachutes by pushing bundles out of airplanes. So the fact that some real commanders want to jump, brilliant, more power to you. And he's then instrumental in getting Sterling introduced to the right people to create force. Shepherd's Hotel, so you got a family connection there. And and that 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 place was a little bit like, I suppose, a couple of scenes at a Casablanca and, and and Rick and all that kind of malarkey, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean my so my great 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 grandfather, he was a, a guy called Samuel Shepherd. And he so we're talking a long time before the first world war, basically just before Suez got built, the canal. Uh, he was a he was a young midshipman, about eighteen, probably twenty, uh, and he he got into a row with the captain of his ship because the ship mutinied and he supported the crew, which which got him sacked. So he got put off put off in Egypt, and he started working in the hotels over there, and he and he, and he got very friendly with the pasha, who's the Egyptian ruler, and. He wanted to go independent, make his own hotel, and the Pasha gave him a princess's palace and uh, and helped fund on a very low loan the, the Shepherd's Hotel Cairo, which then took off. Suez were built, flying boats went through it. First World War, everyone lived there, you know, all the, all the generals and that. Uh, I mean, you know, and then by the time he's, he sold that actually to the Germans, the so Bavarians owned it in the Second World War. He had a German hotel manager during the Second World War. It was it was basically a, a, a den of intrigue. <laughs> You're right, Ricks in Casablanca. <laughs> uh, even down to the barman, who was a guy called Joe the Swiss Solomon, who claimed no nationality because he'd been born on a ship. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we permanently had a, a, a corporal in plain clothes stationed at the bar to check if he was spying, and nobody knew if he was or he wasn't. We didn't know. No one knew whose side he was on. Anyway, but that that was where they all hung out, which mm -hmm. suited Clark down to the ground. I mean, you can imagine he he was right into all that intrigue and spying and spies. Absolutely. And I know you're you're bound by the Official Secrets Act. So about, you know, obviously things you've done within the SAS and all that. But the force itself, when you look at these characters like Sterling and Maine and all that, and, and Dudley Clark in particular, and you're saying they're a different breed, a different type of person. Would you would you think, would you say you're like any of those characters or it's become much more ordered, hasn't it, since? I'd be very arrogant to say I was like any of those characters. I mean, they, they were extraordinary uh, innovators in their own right. 
I, I thought, well, I think all I think is that you, I think the trait of being able to operate on your own and perhaps think a little bit differently and maybe not follow the rules. Uh, obviously, in the military, this is the problem with peacetime soldiering is you have to follow the rules. But actually, as, I, as I've sort of alluded to, these guys just didn't follow the rules. None of them were able. You know, it seems like, you know, Maine was, you know, they're all iconoclasts. They, you know, you gave them a rule and they just break it. Uh, they were all very good on operations, though. That was their main main trait, yeah. Dudley Clark, he had a lot of luck behind him as well because, like, you know, he he was uh, he got into trouble, was called back, and yeah. then the boat that he was on capsized. Yeah, so this is the... Yeah. yeah, people who know this story. So one of the things about Dudley Clark, that's the other thing. That, that, when I say there are alternatives, so there are quite, actually quite a lot of uh, gay gay people in, in, in the SAS in the early days and special forces. I think partly because, again, it was illegal to be gay in those days. So if you were already outside society, you'd probably look for alternative employment. You didn't want to stay with a regular army unit. You thought, I'll go and join those guys because nobody gives two hoots what you're doing in that outfit. So so, so there was a bit of that. And, but he was actually, Dudley Clark was a cross-dresser. Yeah, so he liked wearing women's clothes. And and actually he was, um because he, he, a lot of the time he went undercover. And I, I, I've, I've sort of looked into this a bit. And I think basically before the war, uh, when, you know, the cabaret, the, now that that is all set. It's all basically set against the backdrop of the Nazis coming in and the end of the Weimar. But that's when Clark was hanging around in Europe, and I think at some point he probably did start wearing dresses. You know, maybe not in UK, but in, and then um, in the war, I think he started using them to to go undercover, and we know that because he was picked up in Spain wearing a dress. Great photo and, of the both of them in there. Yeah, that's the photo. The photo of the Spanish police getting him. So this is. He really pushed his luck, actually, in Spain. And the reason he'd done that is because his spy network in Istanbul had been shut down by the by the German invasion of Russia. So he had to go to Spain, which is a very bad place because it's fascist, obviously. It's, in, it's neutral, but it's basically fascist country. Uh, and he's picked up. And at that point, the Brits don't really know what to do with him because, you know, they've got Clark. He's got a lot of secrets. He's very badly compromised. But the Spanish police had to hand him back to us at which point Churchill demands he gets back to Britain to face the music because they're worried he's mad. They think he could be gay. Don't know. I mean, you know, that was a bad thing in those days. And it carried a jail sentence. Definitely get you kicked out of the military. And yeah, as you're saying, he's going, he's on his way back. And, and, and as, as a clerk uh, uh, said, he, you know, he, he luckily got torpedoed by a U-boat and survived and got back to Gibraltar. And then he gets back to Cairo to carry out, carry on deceiving the Germans. Yeah. It's an unreal story, isn't it? It's like, Wait, I can't wait for the movie to be made. <laughs> the movie. It is unreal because on that on the night he's flying back to Cairo from that incident, he flies through the gale one way while Sterling and Maine and all the others are flying the other way on the first SAS project in the desert. He looks out of the right right side of the cockpit as he says, and you can see the flashes of the attacks going in. It's extraordinary. Yeah, the movie would be good. <laughs> It'd be very good. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's such an unreal story. It's a lot of it's so unbelievable, to, and then it's it's actually true. Like you know what I mean? And yeah. Don't you find that with history though? Sometimes you get the fictional version of the history, and then you find the factual version. You go, wow, that's so much Way better, more interesting. Because yes. like Yvonne, Yvonne would be, uh, I suppose, a newbie as far as history goes. A history luddite. You know, we're uh, <laughs> we're we're twenty years together, and it's taken twenty years for that switch to be flicked and it it, it has been flicked uh, Yvonne now is really interested in what she's reading I, yeah. before she just yeah. would have been 
we stop collecting books because I have a fierce habit for collecting books. Um, and I have, I have a container full of them where I have my stu- you know, my own studio thing going on and, and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, no, it's it, it, it's great. The book, like, you can't you cannot write better stories than the real thing. That's that. That's no, nice. that, that that's absolutely true. But it, be, it takes a while to convert people because as a mate of mine turned to me in the pub on the Wounded Ireland play Friday, he said, your wife doesn't know much about this sport, does she? And I went, oh, no. <laughs> she wasn't following the game as closely. And as it, the thing is, if you don't know about something, it makes it maybe a little less interesting, you know, because the interest, the, the knowledge is what gives you the understanding, you know. You know. I think it's, a, it's an awful pity that it's taught in schools yeah. uh, as, a, as a subject that's kind of like, you must learn it this way, factual dates, you know, and, and, and it's always one-sided. But when you pick up a history book, well, what I have found is, and you're reading it, and it's just being told as a story, not as I have to remember these facts, but I'm reading it as a point of interest where I didn't have that experience in school when it came to history. It was like more take out your cards. Remember this fact. Remember this date because I have to relay this in, in tests, you know, yeah. whereas history is way more fascinating. It, it, it is. And actually, again, I'm not really an academic and I came to this late in life, you know, with my writing, came through the film. Business, but I absolutely love it. I mean, I love the research. You know, the research is really fascinating. If you're into a subject like this, this. Yeah, and the stuff you pull out is unbelievable, you know. And my book, which is like 150,000 words, there's much more there that I couldn't put in because the publisher wouldn't let me go any longer than 150, so that's uh, it. I, I just think it's rich and detailed, but it carries a pace, you know, and yeah. that's... That's obviously the the knack and that's the skill of 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 the author. Um, and I think that's what I'm saying. It really obviously comes through your experience within the military uh, that it's, you know, it doesn't feel like you're struggling with these facts. It just flows because, you know, in all the acronyms, you're familiar with how strategies get played out. And um, so it makes it sound much, 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 much more real, you know. Um, but I suppose that's the thing. Like, there's so much in that book. And we could like that. You could talk for hours about the book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what we're trying to do is uh, give people a flavour of it because we want people to go out and buy it, obviously. That, that's the thing, because it really is. Because there's an awful lot of stuff out there on the SES at the moment. There seems to have been a lot of stuff popping up. Yeah. Um, yeah. I published some sort of zeitgeist. I don't know. But all of the stories, this was why I wrote the book, was all those stories start, you know, with 1941 and we're in the desert and they just stick with that narrative. And uh, when I discovered all about Dark and Deadly Clark and the use and deception, there's a much bigger story there because one of the biggest impacts, talking about what, what the SS did in the war, one of the biggest impacts was how many lives they saved through this deception. So Clark's always deceiving people and, and you know, diverting forces. And that saved thousands of lives during the war. And that was his main motivation. Like I'm saying, he came from the First World War going, we don't want to do that again. I'll come up with the commandos, I'll come up with special forces, and I'll use that to save people's lives. And he does it time and time again during the Second World War. Yeah, that's it. And changed, yeah, it's a changed warfare uh, forever. And, and Lars, I mean, do you think that you, I think you mentioned you had a, an influence possibly in the CIA as well, and the formation yeah. of that, the, yeah. the, because they're working with the OSS. Was that, is that right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think what happened was there was a guy, there was basically a guy called, uh, while, Bill Donovan, Donovan came over and he was um, Roosevelt's kind of like man on the ground early in the war to look at what was going on. He went to he went to England and he went out to Cairo where he met up with Clark. And what Roosevelt wanted him to do was type up a draft of a proposal to imitate the uh, British Secret Service. But when Donovan got back, he didn't do that. He wrote up the template for the OSS CIA, which was 
black ops, assassination, deception, special forces, basically Clark's playbook for what was A-Force. He gave that proposal in. And so I think Clark has got to take some credit for that because he invented that. Nobody thought of like combining deception, special forces, taking out generals, special raids behind the line. Nobody put all that together, you know, in one thing. And Clark had come up with that by the time him and Donovan uh, came together. And actually the, the name, the US, the other thing, the US Rangers was the name that Clark gave. He said, you should create some commandos and you should call them the Rangers. So that that is a that is a fact that they're called the Rangers because of Clark. That was the name he suggested. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Do you think um, Dudley Clark? Like it's it all happened so young for him. The fact that he was fourteen, thinking of joining the army, leaving when he was fifteen, and then going out to the front line when he was fifteen years old and getting sent back. So there was already that devilment in him that he was like thinking of how can I deceive these other guys in order to let me fight on the front line and then his sexuality that had to be hidden you yeah. know um so he had to learn all these different traits in order to be different so therefore his mind must have been always on fire overthinking about how to do different things so he was given this you know uh an ability to think outside the box then he was able to use it to strategize I absolutely agree with you. I think that's exactly that's a really good way of describing his character. And, and the thing that if you look at what he loved, he loved vaudeville plays and cinema when cinema came in. He was I, I his brother, actually, Tibby Clark, was an Oscar winning screenwriter, his younger brother. So I think that was Clark, Clark Dudley Clark. That was he would have been in the film industry. So he's, he's that kind of guy. He's very creative, but he's in the military being very creative in the military. But you're absolutely right. Yeah, you you're absolutely. That's a great description of, of the kind of guy I think he was. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Glad this this has all come out uh, and and that you have released a, a story like this because I'd kind of I'd stopped reading all that you know the rest yeah. of it, whatever yeah. you know grand and then this one popped up on the screen and went oh yeah let's have a go with this see yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's 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 a pity because I think there's been so much and it's all the same vein of. Yeah. You know, and, and I think there's a big focus on the toughness of the soldering. But what I'm trying to do is go, OK, that's great. That's kind of the base level you needed because you've got to go out there in the desert or wherever and survive. But actually, if you're in the wrong desert, wrong jungle, wrong country, that's hopeless. Like you, The main thing was the thinking behind it. What was this? What was the point of this organisation? Why did it come about? And then how was it used? And that is a really interesting narrative that I don't think people have delved into much before. No, definitely not. Definitely not. Um, and, and I have a question just about the SAS as well. I suppose just your experience within it and, and the official secrets actually I'm fascinated about because and I'll tell you why, because there's an awful lot of Navy SEALs floating about. We've interviewed some of them, uh, people from ex-CIA who actually did spy work. And it's like loose lip city. Do you know what I mean? Like the stuff yeah. is just everything gets poured out. Now, the Official Secrets Act can lock stuff up for 75 plus years. So we're talking three generations before anyone's getting into anything. Um, and I suppose that 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 applies. That's an I suppose that's an interesting thing. I mean, there was were you did you actually get special access to any of the archives? But no, like, I didn't. Okay, the, the 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 modern special forces we sign uh because anything post 1948. Is, is secret. So the reason I'm able to write this book is because it's all 
It's now actually nearly, I think 99%, in fact, all of it's public access. There were some interesting things I found out. Like I didn't know that Ireland story before I sat down. So this is when Clark goes on this mission to, to, to Ireland uh, in 1940. I didn't know that. And that had been redacted from everything. And actually there was only... Uh, I found I found the original document, the original redacted um, chapter of his book, because he didn't mention the, the mission to Ireland, he, and people thought it was Spain. And then I backtracked, and that never really was publicised. You know that that bit of information was never really made public. It was written about in I'll tell you whose book it was. I've got it. Um, Ireland. You probably read this. Ireland in the War Years. It was Joseph Carroll. Men. He obviously right. sat down at some point with Clark, and Clark showed him this manuscript because Carroll in his book mentions Clark turning up in Dublin. You know, I was kind of like, that's nuts. He did what? He got on Churchill's aeroplane, flew flew to Ireland, in, or flew to yeah, Northern Ireland, then went to Ireland in the middle of, night, you know, middle of the war, like right in May 1940. This is madness. Yeah. So yeah. just goes to show there's stuff that's still hidden, uh, even if, it, and when it does get declassified, sometimes it doesn't really come out, you know, like the stuff with Clark, most of that's out of public domain, but nobody really looked at it. Yeah. And I don't know if I really answered your question there, actually. <laughs> Sorry. No, you have, you have. Sorry, go on. Up now. Did, did I read that he actually lived in Ireland for a while? People thought he lived in Spain, but he lived here. I don't know. No, no, he visited. No, people thought he visited Spain. He didn't live in Ireland. I think people thought he visited Spain because they, because in this mission, he gets sent on a mission to Ireland, to Dublin, uh, in May 1940, because a German parachutist, uh, you probably know this story, but basically it's, it, there's that very early in the war, there's a play between the British and Germans are both trying to get into Ireland and try and the Germans because they think that somehow they'll support the IRA and that'll be a good thing. And the Brits, because we're desperate to get our hands on the ports because of the Atlantic War. And and in the middle of all this, in May, when both sides are trying to court Ireland, um, a German parachutist is found in uh in, in, he's parachuted in to the home of a, an Irish um businessman who but he's got he's got German parentage and it somebody rumbles it and the police go around and go and they've got he's got twenty thousand dollars he's got plans of and they, everyone goes oh no you're joking and at the same time it's during Operation Sea Line do you know Operation Sea Line so it's the it's the planned invasion of the Germans and in those plans they've got a fake plan which is called I think it's called Operation Green that's it and that is the invasion on but it's a fake plan it's not a real plan but the Brits have bought it and we're going oh it's really going to happen we got to do something and so Clark gets pulled out of the Dunkirk evacuation which he's organizing at the time and sent over there you know, in plain clothes to try and uh, negotiate and 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 that sets up what we would then do if the Germans came which is basically how we're going to reinforce uh Ireland and help help fight the Germans yeah it would get you thinking, though, if Hitler actually had decided to invade Ireland, how different things might have been. Oh. Then he would have had the the Ireland oh, surrounded. Yes. I mean, the great thing about Hitler was he's absolutely hopeless. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. hopeless individual. Uh, who uh, there was a, there was another little special right towards the end of the war. We got an opportunity to, to, to assassinate him actually in 1944, uh, or, or at least we knew where he was. And uh, uh, Pagisme, who's the Churchill's right-hand man said might be better to leave him in place because having him on the other side and the amount he messes up is helping us enormously you know so yeah because Hitler was a, a liability for his own side completely completely and uh, probably due to a lot of the speed he was taking at the time anyway to keep himself <laughs> to keep himself going yeah. 
what are your I know you can't go into detail, but just your experience. I'm trying to get this to your emotion. What, what does it bring up in you if you mention the word selection? Like what did that do to your psyche and your body? It was a long time ago. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it is. It is. I mean, it's what they set up. The guy, Jock Lewis, he's the guy who started all this. So those marches I talk about in the book and the way he tried to do that was the the idea that, you know, you've got to try and test people to, to the limit of their endurance because that's the way they're going to end up. And, like, if you then look at what happened to – I mean, you read that bit about Fraser's team and they end up in the desert, they're 200 miles behind the lines. You know, that happened to guys in Iraq, you know. You've got to test people that they're going to – there's no way of, like, 100% testing someone to know that they're going to be able to perform but you've got to try and physically and mentally test people so that you know that they're going to be capable of this you know yeah yeah incredible it's a great amazing thing to actually go through and say you've you've actually done survived and uh yeah past past selection so i'll say it's it is the few yeah it was it was a little thing like so his badge the badge they get or we get at the end of that is um is from my great great grandfather's hotel. So the little, the, not the, but not the, way. Yeah. Right. So the, the the parachute badge is taken from the Shepherd's Hotel. It was the God Ra. So they substitute the God Ra, which is the circle, with the parachute, uh, and then the wings are the wings carry the God Ra. Basically, in Egyptian mythology, they carry him across the side of the desert's sky, and then he goes down in the land of the dead, which is in the west, and he has to travel through the underworld and get back up. And I thought that's such an appropriate bit of mythology people don't really know it but it sort of symbolizes the wings that you wear on your shoulder when you pass selection that you're going to be able to fly across the sky and then you travel through the underworld and rise again you know hopefully and oh. uh, wow so when you were uh joined the SAS, did you know that no i didn't know that i i only found it out when i was i knew that i knew the emblem and it wasn't really till i was researching the book that i was looking at the pictures of my um great great grandfather's hotel and saw it and then I was reading Carol Mather is a guy who ended up joining the SAS. And, and he, David Sterling's recruiting him in the foyer of my great-great-grandfather's Hotel Shepherds. And he describes the wings above his head. And he goes, that's the design of the wings. We, and I went, oh, of course, that's what they use. They, they, they had it over all around them in the hotel. And Jock Lewis took that design. And he took it as a motivational tool because he thought, I'm going to put them through this course, which would then become a selection. And at the end of it, they get this badge. That that was quite that was a really new thing back then, the idea of having a motivational badge that you get at the end of passing something. Yeah, interesting, interesting. And, and before we let let you go, just a current affairs thing, actually, where things are and around the world at the moment. Um, like to me, you know, obviously history it does repeat itself, unfortunately, uh, yeah. and you can see conflagration starting to happen when, you know, uh, sort of bad stuff spreads. I mean, we've got Ukraine. It ain't going to end soon. It's going to keep on going. So it's a small war. It's close to home in certain respects, if you're going to get yourself in the EU generally. Uh, and now what we have that's going to happen in Gaza, if it hasn't already, probably what didn't before we came on anyway, what just having been in the military, what would you see the dangers being from here? I mean, would you think there is any possibility that Iran will defend Gaza, for instance? I think I tell you what I genuinely think about all this. It's so easy sitting in my armchair. Here I am in my armchair, 
yeah. Yeah. and we all do it. And having been in a couple of war zones, the only place you know any of this is on the ground in the experience. So oh. I, I, I couldn't hazard a guess. I, the answer, the answer is I don't think so. That's not my, that would not be. I think what happened was that the Hamas shot its bolt. In, yeah. in a very similar way to Egypt in the Yom Kippur War, shot its bolt as they had a pre-planned, pre-staged operation. They went to went on and went on a template, but they're not well resourced to mass. And it's now going to just be say, as you said, it's history repeating itself. Israel will go into Gaza and it'll be the same as it always is. Yeah. I mean, I wish, and actually researching my book, Clark, Dudley Clark, he said Palestine was the most beautiful country in the world. He would have settled there. He really wanted to retire there. You know, he wanted to live there had it not been for what happened. And it's just a tragedy for the whole region, really. You know, such a beautiful part of the world. Uh, Lebanon, you know, it, it is, it's a tragedy. I just wish people could somehow see sense in all that. But we all have our history. Ireland, yeah, yeah. all of us, you know, all of us sit here going, scratching our heads, going, you know, reasonable people. And I remember working in Tel Aviv years ago and just going out on a normal day to a barbecue or on the Sabbath on Saturday with a family, just like it could have been anywhere. Could have been Dublin, could have been London. You know, it was normal. Most people don't want this to be happening. No, no, indeed. That's it. Yeah, exactly. That's the same. Yeah, same, same for most wars. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's been a real pleasure. Um, it's uh yeah, it's it's been fantastic. I, I love the book. So I mean, everyone should uh, go out and buy it. Tom Petch, uh, Speed, Aggression and Surprise. Uh, let's say the the real history of the SAS. Oh, thanks very much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, thank you very much. It's been very, very good to talk to you and keep up the good work. I'm enjoying the podcast. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks a million, Tom. Okay, Tom, take care. I would like to take just a moment to thank all the Hipstorian followers for your support. We plan to continue and expand our efforts into the future. As you can probably appreciate, it does cost to produce the show and we have been funding this ourselves. There is a link within the episode where you can make a one-time one euro enjoyment donation and we'd very much welcome uh, any donations at all in fact anyhow if uh, you don't have it don't worry keep tuning in we'll be here